going a little out of order for some of you. It's driving you nuts as we speak, but it'll be okay. Um, how are we doing? Yeah? On a scale of mildly stressed to panic attack, how are we doing? Yeah? Everyone breathing, breathing in paper bags. Um, all right. I'm Sid Drew, and I'm the campus minister for RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. RUF is a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve you all uh, in this campus, and we mean you all wherever you are and however you are. Uh, And we want to be a place where anyone can come. We don't want to be just for one kind of people. We want to be for every kind of people. And so that means any scene on campus, any personal background, we hope that you feel welcomed. And we mean that even just where you are spiritually. Um, Whether you feel comfortable calling yourself a believer or you feel more comfortable calling yourself a spiritual skeptic, whether you feel more comfortable calling yourself convinced or unconvinced or uh, something in between or none of the above. Uh, We're just really glad you're here. So thanks for coming. And especially if you're new, thanks for taking the time, the energy to come out um, in unofficial round two of midterms. So I really appreciate that. Uh, We're really glad to see you. And also, if I don't know you, I'd love to meet you. Um, and I'm sure my interns, Maddie, raise your hand, and, and Eric, would love to meet you too. Not to speak for them, but I just did. And everyone else also, if you, someone says, I'm sure a lot of other students who are regulars would love to kind of hang out and talk to you a little bit too. Then there's wonderful Chick-fil-A in the back, LaCroix. Um, it's a spread, so thanks to Harp again in the back. We'll talk more about that at the end. Um, so I just did that introduction about who we are, um, that we are four you all for students and for the campus as a ministry. Uh, And that leads me to kind of do something a little bit different that we usually don't do, but it's kind of a different time on the campus. So we wanted to kind of specially address some of the concerns on campus. Um, There's been some recent hateful incidences on campus in the last few weeks. And as you can see from the announcement section, we're starting to try to address that as a a ministry. There's been a few students that have come forward and really tried uh, and, and, and alongside with the staff tried to sort of Uh, come forward and do something that would be helpful for the community. So one of those things is that prayer meeting on Thursday in Common Hour in Chambers 1062, 1062. Um, And please go to that if you're interested. It won't be the whole time. Wilson will be leading that in the back. Um, Also, we're going to have some students. I'm going to say Wilson again. Wilson and Katie who did announcements and um, Royce. Where's Royce? Somewhere. There he is. They're going to be in the back. And if you want to pray or talk about this more, um, what's kind of been going on on campus, we'd love to give them as an opportunity to pray with you or talk with you about it more. Um, and they'll probably, if you want to pray, there's a room in the back over there. There's a, a magic hallway behind this room, and there's a room behind that. Um, and then the last thing that we're doing as a ministry, um, because of everything that's kind of going on uh, on social media and on campus, is we've produced official statement. Um, This is a big deal for us. It's not me, by the way. This is a group of people behind the scenes that I'm just the mouthpiece of. Um, But I'm going to read the official statement. This will be put on our social media account, Instagram, Facebook, um, tonight or early tomorrow. Okay, ready? In light of the incidents that have occurred in the last few weeks, the Davidson College chapter of Reformed University Fellowship expresses our solidarity with the students in our community who were targeted by this malicious and hateful speech. We believe that all human beings are created in God's image and have an inherent dignity that deserves respect and love. Therefore, we are challenged by the powerful words of Dr. Martin Luther King, who reminded us that in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. 
to those in our REF chapter and the greater REF, or greater, excuse me, Davidson community who have been targeted by hateful speech, we stand with you, whatever your personal background, social scene on campus, or faith perspective. As Christians, our confidence and the triumph of good over evil is expressed in Jesus' promises and his life's example. And so we join with our Davidson community to demonstrate through meaningful actions and relationships that together, perfect love casts out all fear. And so that's a really, a lot of people worked on that and we really stand by that. We really want to be a group that is addressing what's going on on campus. And so if you have other ways that you think we could join into that conversation, please let us know. But we did want to say something on record about um, coming out against some of the things that were said. Um, so thanks for your time. And I'm gonna let Abby get up here and read the passage. This is our transition. Ephesians 5, 18 through 33. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for, and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, another tough transition. Uh, so what we're going to do, we've been talking this semester in large group about relationships. Uh, we're looking at the topic of relationship, and more precisely, what does Jesus do um, with our relationships, with our particular relationships of family and friends and dating and sex and singleness and the church and this week, marriage. Uh, for the first four weeks, we took a big picture approach to that and a thing I called the foundation story of relationships. And several weeks ago now, we began a smaller picture look at our relationships. And we've been asking, what does it look like to remember the good about our relationships? What does it look like to acknowledge the bad about our relationships? And what does it look like to trust in God's healing for our families, our friendships, our dating, our sex, uh, and our singleness last week? And tonight we're going to finish what we started way back when in dating part one uh, in Genesis chapter two. And we're discussing the final romantic relationship, marriage, that we're going to look at. Marriage. There's a part of me and a part of you right now that's shouting, really, Sid, marriage. Have you looked around at your audience recently? <laughs> no students in here are married. Um, is this just a sermon for you and your life? Is that what you're doing for 
Should we go ahead and dim the lights and for a married couple's roller skate outing? Uh, you know, is this just some sort of Christian adult swim where the rest of you sort of shiver over a popsicle and watch me and my wife swim lazy laps in the pool in the heat of July? Like, what is this about? Why are we doing this? Well, I'm going to give you a few brief reasons why uh, I'm talking to a room full of single college students about a relationship that you don't have. And if you think about it, you mostly think about it in the very future tense. First, as I said before, the majority of you in this room will likely get married. You'll likely get married. So even if you're not thinking about marriage right this second, it's in your self-interest to start thinking about marriage. And, And my hope is that we even start to think about how we think about marriage, if that makes sense. Second, marriage is a lightning rod of all relationships. Here's what I mean. The Bible almost always speaks about marriage in the larger context of all relationships, relationships in general. And we see this in our passage tonight in Ephesians 5. So when I say marriage, you can oftentimes replace the word marriage with almost any given relationship because many of the same principles apply. And I'll talk to you about where that is and where that isn't in Ephesians chapter 5. But marriage also has a cultural lightning rod effect, doesn't it? When I say the word marriage, no one in this room is neutral about it. No one's neutral personally about it. No one's neutral politically about it. And this again leads me to ask for your patience. And I've done this the last few weeks several times. I just would love for you to hold out, to hear me all the way to the very end of what I'm saying. Um, I'd really appreciate that patience. I'm asking for your kindness to separate what I say from what I don't say. Because there's going to be a lot of assumptions going into what you think I'm going to say and what you think I'm not going to say. So, but before we look at Ephesians 5, which might be the lightning storm surrounding marriage's lightning rod, um, I'm going to ask for you to pray with me and for me and for our time together. Father, um, there's a lot going on. There There is a lot of academic work. There is a lot of dreaming of Thanksgiving dinner. There's a lot of um, hate and fear on the campus. There's a lot of frustration with our cultural moment politically, um, domestically, and internationally. Uh, There's just a lot swirling in the hearts of everyone in this room. And I pray that you'd meet us where we are. Uh, God, show us the ways that you can love each of us as if we're the only one. And I pray that you'd meet us, that you you would... chase us down or you would sit next to us in the dark and squeeze our hands or you would speak to us in ways that we need to hear because I can't do it on my own I need you to speak through your words once again like you've been doing for thousands of years and I pray that Jesus you'd be high and lifted up as a result that you Jesus would be more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts and we ask this in your name Jesus amen So I spent a lot of time introducing the topic of marriage. Uh, The reason is simple. I think we either think way too much or way too little about marriage. So let me explain that. We either think way too much or way too little about marriage. So I had this friend, um, and he has this incredible story of his wedding day. His future wife and long-suffering girlfriend had fired off a series of marry me or else ultimatums. He had been dating. He's a long-term dater. And my friend proceeded to drag his feet to the altar. He finally kind of got the absolute breaking point of the relationship, asked her to marry him almost reluctantly, and they ended up at this day. 
Um, and anyway, on the day of his wedding, um, you can imagine, he was pale yet flushed at the same time. He was sweating all over, and it was the, the ceremony hadn't even started. And his eyes kind of had that disconnected glaze to them, like he couldn't quite focus on anything. And his bride-to-be asked him a, a dangerous question. Are you okay? How are you feeling? And my friend answered this question, true story, honestly but poorly. And it's true, you can do that. <laughs> honestly but poorly answered. He said, and I quote, I feel like I'm dying. <laughs> I feel like I'm dying. Not the best answer to say on your wedding day. <laughs> uh, at the time, my friend felt about marriage like some of us here feel about marriage. He was feeling too little about marriage. He was overly cynical and fearful about marriage. He remembered his parents' marriage. He saw a ball and chain lurking behind the vows. He thought marriage would be the death of him. It's the same for some of us. We think too little of marriage. We cynically undervalue marriage. We dismiss marriage. We don't know whether we got that idea from some sad after-school special or growing up in a home or a neighborhood with divorce or loveless marriages on display or personal romantic rejection in our own lives. Uh, we can have a self-protective and often irrational fear of marriage. Fears that marriage will trap us emotionally, that it will trap us socially, that marriage will trap us professionally. Others of us in this room think too much of marriage. We overemphasize, we, ad, we idolize, or we, we ad, idolize, we idolize or overemphasize or overvalue marriage. Figure out that word eventually. Uh, look, whether it's from Disney princess movies or news stalking Meghan Merkel, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry's, I'm really dying here. <laughs> Just sweating bullets, the statement, Ephesians 5. Okay. So whether it's, new, whether it's sort of princess movies, Disney princess movies, or Meghan Markle and uh, Prince Harry's 21st century fairy tale wedding, or you know, growing up in a family that, ha- that valued traditional family values, or just leaning into our deep aching loneliness and thinking this just might be the trick, some of us here are, have this kind of impossible, over-the-top hope for marriage, that it can heal us, that it can give our lives meaning, or at the very least, it can sort of declare to the watching world that we've made it as an adult. We're, we're adulting. At the same moment that marriage felt like death to my friend, that same sort of wedding moment, a lot of people start to feel too much about marriage. We can get overly sentimental. We can get overly demanding about what marital love should provide. I love the way that the Avid brothers uh, address our marriage lust in their song, Love Like the Movies. This is how they put it. So you want to be in love like the movies, but in the movies, they're not in love at all. With a twinkle in their eyes, they're just saying their lines. And so we can't be in love like the movies. Now in the movies, they make it look so perfect. And in the background, they're always playing the right song. And in the ending, there's always a resolution. But real life is more than just two hours long. You see, oftentimes, things like movies help us fall in love with the idea of falling in love. Instead of realizing that marriage is, as they just said, more than two hours long. But Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 33, depict the Christian idea of marriage that does not promise too little or too much. 
And there we learn that marriage, like several other of our relationships, that marriage is more wonderful and more difficult than we think it is. And that there is something in marriage worth sincerely desiring. It's a mystery after all. Okay? There's worth something sincerely desiring. It's a mystery. But there's something in marriage that's worth the caution that we feel about it. It requires mutual submission. And so Ephesians 5 verses 18 through 33 tell us a compelling and challenging truth about marriage. And it's just in a sentence. Marriage is a profound mystery that ultimately describes Jesus' love. Marriage is, a, marriage is a profound mystery that ultimately describes Jesus' love. Semicolon. Therefore, <laughs> we enter into this mystery, we enter this in this mystery by loving each other like Jesus loves us. So it's a mystery, and we enter into that mystery by loving each other like Jesus loves us. All right, so in the face of our definite hopes, definite fears about married life, Ephesians chapter 5 is telling us, step back, remember two big questions. They're on your handout. First, verses 29 through 32, what is the mystery of marriage? Why is it mysterious? Second question, verses 18 through 28, and then a very end, verse 33, how do we live into the mystery of marriage? What's our part to play in that mystery? So I'm going to keep the questions in order, which is going to make us address the passage out of order, if that makes sense. And so we're going to begin tonight with the end of the passage and generally work our way back up to the beginning. And so we're going to look at verses 29 through 32, and we're going to look at the question that speaks directly to our lonely longings. What is the mystery of marriage? What's the mystery? Okay, so what's the mystery of marriage and why in the world does it matter to single people? Okay, why am we talking about this on a Tuesday night in RUF? Verses 29 through 32 tell us the excitement, the happiness of marriage is wrapped up in God's promise that the two shall become one flesh. The two shall become one flesh. That's the nature of the mystery. That is on that wedding day when the vows are made public to each other before God and friends and family and everyone gathered there, the bride and the groom actually changes people. That's what this is saying. Those who are once two become one in a mystic, sweet communion. They're united together. They don't physically become one. They spiritually become one. They, they become one flesh. And so look, I don't mean just that they change their name. Like oftentimes people will change two last names into one last name to symbolize this. But in the original Greek, the passage suggests a far deeper mystery is occurring. As one biblical scholar notes, marriage is described as soul-on-soul superglue. Soul-on-soul superglue. That is, God is intimately connecting, wholesale completing a husband and a wife. So marriage's promises no one, no one will ever know you better or more intimately than your spouse knows you. And at the same time, you will never know anyone else better or more intimately than you know your husband or your wife. And verses 29 through 32 promise that you will finally and fully be able to be yourself around someone. And that someone will embrace and accept you for you. And that will be the one that you marry. That's the promise that's going on in the two flesh to one flesh. 
So I'm going to try to put this even more poetically, if that's possible. Okay, I have a friend named Sammy Rhodes. He's a campus minister at University of South Carolina, and he puts it something like this. The mystery of marriage is that it's a face-to-face, look each other down deep into the very pupils and say, you are mine, I am yours, oneness. It's a face-to-face oneness. Marriage's mystery also offers a side-by-side oneness. It's a, this is my best friend who gets me and walks with me through the knee-deep muck and knee-high grassy splendor of life, oneness. And then finally, the mystery of marriage surprises us with a, I'm not going anywhere. I know your every crack, blemish, and scar, yet I'm here unto death, oneness. Okay? And really, I think this third kind of oneness is the hardest kind of love to grasp. And at the same time, by its very permanence, defines marital love. That idea of until death do us part oneness. Okay, I'm going to give you an illustration. It's just in case the poetry was too much. Okay, here we go. Uh, What does it look like in real life to have this I'm not going anywhere oneness? It's a football illustration. I can't can't make it any better. Okay, so some of you are not college football fans. Bear with me. But there there was a Florida State football coach named Bobby Bowden for a long, long time. And he tells the story of coming back home from his team winning a national championship. And this is the thing he's worked for forever. And you can imagine the scene. It's one and a half hours in Tallahassee of hearing his name chanted in unison by people he has no idea who they are. Right? It's one and a half hours of people lined up deep and wide just to get to him, just to touch him, just to get him to put his name on their keepsake. In fact, the crowd, the celebration was so intense, it took the entire hour and a half for Bobby Bowden to find his wife. He couldn't locate her in the crowd. And then Bowden says, of that day, it was the best I've ever felt about myself. Best he's ever felt. Fast forward just one year. One year later, his top-ranked football team lost to their in-state rival, Florida, and they lost bad. This, is, this time when he got home, there was not a single person chanting his name. There was no one lined up in the streets for his autograph or just wanting to touch him or greet him. That is except for one person, his wife. She was there in person to meet him. And he says, before he saw his wife, it was the worst he'd ever felt about himself. But do you know what Coach Bowden's wife told him in that soul-crushing moment? She said, you know, Bobby, I'm the only one who ever really cared about you. That's because win or loss, you belong to me. I'm the only one who ever cared about you. Win or loss, you belong to me. Don't you like just long for that kind of moment right now? Like this time of year, Davidson. That's what all we want. (laughs) Don't you just wish for, don't you just want someone to claim you even if you fail? Big. No matter if you finish the paper, no matter how well the presentation goes, you want someone to love you side by side, face to face with the promise they're not going anywhere. Well, the beauty of this passage is there can be someone who loves you, that is one with you like that, whether you're married or not. How? 
because, in the inspired words of Paul, this mystery is profound, and it refers to husband and wife. No. It refers to Christ and his church. Christ and his church is what he's talking about. Jesus loves his church. He loves people like us, face-to-face, side-by-side, and forever. Theologian and poet Frederick Buechner describes this forever oneness that death itself cannot part like this. He says it this way, romantic love is blind to everything except what is lovable and lovely. So romantic love is blind to everything except what is lovable and lovely. But Christ's love sees us whole and with terrible clarity. Christ's love sees us whole and with terrible clarity. You see, Jesus' marital love is not blindly sentimental like a movie. But it's also not cynical that it won't risk hurting itself for you. History tells us that Jesus got hurt for us 2,000 years ago on a cross. In fact, Jesus is still hurting for us. Have you ever thought about the fact that he has open wounds in heaven? They're not scarred over. He's still bleeding out for us. He's still using his pain to minister to us and for us, to plead our prayers to God and say, I paid for him. I paid for her. Listen to what she asks for. Hear what he says. Jesus knows how we handle the stress this time of year. He knows how we desperately need to succeed this time of year. He knows how very tired we are, how tired we are of everything. Everything is tasteless this time of year. And we're so tired of ourselves. And with terrible clarity and seeing us whole, Jesus has said, you belong to me. You're a member of my body. I will nourish and cherish you. But how do we know this is true? Well, in history, Jesus took and fulfilled every single vow I made on my wedding day. He is my loving and faithful spiritual husband, and plenty and in want, and joy and in sorrow, and sickness and in health, to love and to cherish me as long as we both shall live, and that is with him forever. But some of you are just getting more cynical. <laughs> like, oh, way to ramp it up, Sid. Uh, I'm waxing how wonderful marriage is, uh, how it can be and should be marriage. And meanwhile, you're kind of mentally swiping through all the marriages you've ever known in your life. And you're going, mm-hmm, mom and dad, mm-hmm, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, mm-hmm. All right, I didn't see much face-to-faceness, didn't see much side-to-sideness there. I didn't see much don't I didn't see much not going anywhere oneness in those relationships. But this realism, this ability to see how difficult it is to be married, how truly difficult marriage is, leads us to the second point, the second big question, our final point. How do we live into the mystery of marriage? How does someone live into the mystery of marriage? Okay, and this is the answer is there is found in verses 18 through 28 and verse 33. So these verses tell us that the husbands and the wives, the men and the women, live into the mystery of marriage when they submit to each other in the name of Jesus. How do you live into the mystery of marriage? Submitting to each other in the name of Jesus. That's right. Mutual submission. 
Love and respect is how God calls people to practice marital oneness. Look, I, I know people are already agitated about this. People get very, very agitated when the word submit comes up. Okay, submit is a very difficult word. And I would say rightly so. There is a sad history of insecure men misusing the word submit in their marriages. But St. Augustine reminds us that abuse or misuse does not rule out use. Misuse does not rule out use. So before you call me or the Bible sexist, please notice precisely how submit is used in the passage and what it actually means. Okay, so first, reading the Bible well requires that we care about a passage's context and we care about its grammar. Can we follow that? Context and grammar. So look at verse 21 with me. There it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this phrase, a participial phrase for my linguists out there, okay, submitting to one another, is connected all the way back to verse 18 grammatically. In other words, it's not a new thought in this passage. So submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is what we do when we're filled with the Spirit. It's how the Spirit of God expresses himself in all of our relationships. And this mutual submission occurs along with encouraging each other in song, singing to God, and giving thanks. You see that in verses 19 through 20. What does this mean? This means the command to submit is not just for wives, but also for husbands. Even as this command to surrender is for all Christians, not just for married folks. Okay? In fact, a wife's submission is so tied to mutual submission in her relationships and in the spirit, get this, that in the verb, the verb submit in verse 22 that you see in the translation is assumed from verse 21. That's a grammatical shorthand to say this. There is no verb submit in the original Greek of verse 22. The English translators have inserted the word submit from verse 21 in order that verse 22 makes sense. Second, the word submit in the Greek, hupotasso, is an action that must be given voluntarily. It cannot be submitted. Excuse me, it cannot be... <laughs> okay, let me try again. Okay, so the word submit in the Greek, hupotasso, is an action that must be given voluntarily. It cannot be demanded. Does that make sense? It can't be demanded. It has to be given. Submission, hupotasso is given among equals. Therefore, by the very Greek word's definition, the wife is not to be understood as an inferior. If hupotasso did mean unequal in any way, shape, or form, Christians would have to believe the Trinity is unequal. Because Jesus the Son is not inferior when he submits hupotasso to God the Father's will in order to come here to earth and rescue us. Jesus and the Father are equal persons in the Godhead. They're equal in substance. They're equal in power. They're equal in glory. Even as Jesus chooses to serve God the Father in the plan of salvation. So all this means when the, when the Bible says the word submission is it's not suggesting or condoning angry fathers yelling at cowering mothers to submit. I'm so sorry that people hurt other people. I am really genuinely sorry that men hurt women. And it really grieves me as a Bible teacher 
that men or women, but especially men in this case, justify that behavior by using the name of Jesus in this passage. Abuse is a heinous sin, and it deserves real consequences. But let me suggest a proper reading of Ephesians 5. Instead, a proper reading of Ephesians 5 tells the husband to also submit, to put his wife before himself, to count her as more significant by self-sacrificially loving her. The same self-sacrificial love, agapao in the Greek, that Jesus loves his church with. Jesus' life and death show us that power, power is not given for self-satisfaction. Power is not given to lord it over others. Power is a responsibility meant to serve others at our own self-expense. That's the nature of power in the Christian world. But discussing what a husband's love distinctly looks like does bring up this issue that submission does indeed look different for each gender, for each biological sex. While both husbands and wives are certainly called to practice love and respect with each other, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 33 highlights that husbands are to more often practice self-sacrificial love, agapao, and wives are to more often practice respect, upatasso. This is because the Bible teaches men and women are absolutely equal in every way. I'm going to say it again. Hear what I'm saying. Men and women are absolutely equal in every way. But they're also different. They need different expressions of submissive love in the context of marriage. And I'm talking about marriage. Not the corporate hierarchy. Not the political world. I'm talking about marriage. Okay? In marriage, men long for wives to cheer them on and follow their lead sometimes because we feel, frankly, defeated and we're scared to death of failing. In marriage, women long for husbands to wash them with the water of the word, to convince them that they're special, that they're worthy, that they're worth fighting for because they feel so ordinary and they fear other people's opinions of them. We live in a cultural moment that struggles to affirm both equality and diversity. We struggle with equality and diversity. America has historically reduced diversity into a systematic kind of inequality. Historically, we have taken diversity and made it systemically unequal. But today, equality is too often reduced to what's interchangeable. And we pay a cheap lip service to diversity. Look, I'm going to say it this way. Far too often, we don't think of men and women as equal, but different and complementary images of God. Even in the Christian world, we don't think of men and women as equal, but different and complementary images of God. They each equally image God, but differently. A God whose Son, who's the Father, who's the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that are all equal, but different and complementary. Do you get the Trinitarian thing here going on? Instead, we employ, in the modern world, we too often employ metaphors. Our metaphors matter. We employ industrial or political metaphors about men and women. We shrink down people to single voting units. We shrink down people to identical number eight size flat washers available at the neighborhood Lowe's near you. Okay? 
And we feel the consequences of this in our modern world. If men or women are just identical consumer items, if men or women are just mere voting units, life's relationships become only a march for money or a march for power. Okay, so if we start to reduce people down to voting units or consumable items, all of a sudden, not so shockingly, life becomes about money or power only. Okay, but what if life's relationships, what if marriage is actually a mysterious dance? What if it's a dance of love? And this is where I quote someone extensively who does a much better job of explaining this. <laughs> so ready? This is theologian Robert Farrar Capone, and he's, exp- he's expanding upon Ephesians 5 metaphorically. That's what he says. <clears throat> the difference between the husband and the wife is not one of worth, ability, or intelligence, but of role. The difference is role. It's functional, not organic. It's based on the demands of the dance. It's not a judgment as to talent. In ballet, in any intricate dance, one dancer leads, the other follows. Not because one is better, he may or may not be, but because it's his part. Our mistake is to think that equality and diversity are unreconcilable. The common notion of equality is based on the image of the march. In a parade, really, unequal beings are dressed alike, given guns of identical length, trained to hold them at the same angle, in order to keep step with a fixed beat. But it is not the parade that is true to life. It is the dance that's true to life. There you have real equals assigned unequal roles in order that they may achieve individual perfection in the whole. Nothing is less personal than a parade. Nothing is more personal than a dance. Marriage is a hierarchical game played by co-equal partners. Keep that paradox and you move into the freedom of the dance. Alter that paradox and you grow weary with marching. Okay. Still with me at this point? Uh, You've heard me out maybe at this point. You haven't left, so I haven't seen anyone leave. So you're probably asking the simple question, (laughs) awesome, so what? (laughs) So what? Uh, Here's my first takeaway. It's a hope. It's a really big, beautiful hope. I hope that we can, we can all admit that talking about why we believe what we believe, even if we disagree, that having the conversation about why we believe what we believe is valuable. I think it's actually important to disagree sometimes. I know that's unpopular. I think it actually helps us to ask better questions about why we believe what we believe. And I actually think we can actually learn to like people for more than likable opinions if we learn to disagree respectfully. Okay. Second, I'd like to press even further into Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. I want to say this. Men and women alike can enter into the mysterious dance of oneness even tonight, even if you're not married. Okay. So how does that work, you might be asking. What is he up to? What does this look like inside? What is this oneness, this dance that uh, Robert Capone is, is, is describing so eloquently? What does that look like inside and outside of marriage? Maybe a final story is going to help us. <laughs> Let's take a look. Okay. 
there's a website um, that's not so popular anymore, but it was really popular for a while. Um, it's been around for a few years. It's still in use, still in service. It's called postsecret.com. Postsecret.com. Here's how it works. People send their deepest secrets on a postcard to this guy, and the website domain master posts these confessions anonymously and online. People have mailed in secrets like this. I use a bracelet of Jesus to hide my cutting scars. When my friends go on diets, I discourage them. This is really just because I want them to be fatter than me. And finally, sometimes the path out of the swamp feels too hard. Sometimes I feel like I just belong there in the swamp. Behind each of these posts, there's this wild hope, right? That someone will love them in their deepest and most private shame. One time a woman actually sent a letter and not a postcard to the website. The letter went like this. I've made six postcards, all with the secrets I was afraid to tell the one person I tell everything to, my boyfriend. This morning I planned to mail them to you, but instead I left them on a pillow next to him while I was sleeping. Ten minutes ago, he arrived in my office and he asked me to marry him. And I said yes. That's what marriage, that's what relationships in general are actually about. It's about finally getting to let your guard down. It's about getting to tell the things that we keep secret because we're scared of them. And getting to tell that secret and she doesn't run away. Getting to tell that secret and he runs towards you. Love, respect, submission. These words are just all about husbands and wives confessing their weaknesses, kissing each other's shames. All the ways that people feel least when they feel least respected. All the ways that people feel when they feel most unlovely. The mystery of marriage is that we can be naked and unashamed because Jesus loves his bride, cherishes his people, even in our deepest, most confessional shames. You see, this is because Jesus is the ultimate bridegroom, and he loves us into loving each other that tenderly. Okay? With all of his self-giving sacrifice, with all of his other-recognizing respect, with all of his selfless submission, he loves us married and unmarried alike. Because at the end of the day, Jesus is that someone that everyone on postsecret.com is looking for. Jesus is that somebody behind every married and single confession. Because Jesus is behind every single and married moment of utter and complete acceptance. He's behind all of those things too. What would it look like to enter in to that mystery and all of our relationships? The trust that Jesus is already there. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for this time. Uh, thanks for this passage, which is a hard one, um, yet again. Uh, but I thank you that um, you use these, that you wrestle with us, and that you teach us uh, what we need to know. And I pray that you'd separate the wheat from the chaff, that you keep what's needed, and you discard what's not. Once again, use your word in the lives of these students and in my own life. Help us to trust, to trust more, 
to trust each other more, to trust you more. Help us to find, um, find other people, to be the other people, um, to, to trust that you're the person who can accept us as we are and make us into the people we want to be by washing us the water of your word. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Mm-hmm.